you guys, you're here, you didn't melt. Am I right? So this past week, I got to spend a week up in kind of the mountains near Mount Rainier. Yes, Mount Rainier. Um, at a leadership camp for high school students. And we were 101, 102 with no way to cool. It was incredible. And people melted. People melted. There's a moment, like a couple days, where we take people out on a challenge course. And it's a way to work on team building and all sorts of things. And it was just like we're all in a puddle. And the horse flies were intense, intense. So they come out at a certain time of day. And, um, but these delegates is what we call them. That's weird. Uh, were just awesome, and it was fun, and I'm, but I'm also very excited to be home. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jason found some new foods to eat as a bachelor as well, so that's kind of fun and exciting. Um, but now I'm just like shifting from that without any cell phone, internet, to we're launching into one of the biggest seasons in the summer for our church, and that is our soccer club. And um, I am so excited to tell you that we have a full coaching staff. Um, we do need help with our barbecue on Friday still. And so if you are like, uh, maybe I could help out, but couldn't do the whole week, we need grillers. We need people to set out chips, cut up watermelon, and just create a welcoming environment for those families as we celebrate our week together. And so if you are available to do that, you would simply go to your online communication card at brookviewchurch.com and fill out contact, and it'll um, kind of push, push that forward to me. And I'd love to give you information and get you going on that. Um, we have our coach training today, and I just kind of want to celebrate. If you are here to train today because you are one of our coaches, would you stand up so that we can celebrate you? Do it. Yep. Nice and tall. Emily Callen, stand up. You are also a coach. Uh-huh. I see you over there. So cool. It may take so many people to pull this off. Um, we have... Oh, I didn't include store people and registration team. You don't want your moment? Okay, this front area doesn't want their moment? Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, well, I'm just super excited. Thank you so much for partnering with us to do what we get to do. It's going to be awesome. guys. It feels like Easter in here a little bit in that there's a, there, ladies, what's with all the dresses? Is it that they're cooler or you get a draft? Is that what's going on? Yes. What do we do, men? We, I guess we just admire the dresses. That's what we do. Kilts? Oh. <laughs> Top of the day to you, lassies. Kilts. Oh, man. Stop. So, okay. Um, right after Christmas this past year, our whole family got COVID. And so uh, I was kind of, we were all quarantining at home. I was with Jen and Kate and Brooke. And uh, at our house, I was the last one to get it. But we got it pretty bad. People were like, was it bad? Yes, it was bad. Um, and we were like really sick. So after a few days of having it, Jen was like, man, I really feel awful. She's like, no, like I'm really sick. Like she's just, this is so bad. So I'm going to paint the house. <laughs> and, and if you know Jen Huguenin, does that surprise you at all? 
no. So she's like, I, I'm just so sick that if I lay around and, and think about it, I'll just feel more terrible. So I need to do something. So I think I'm going to paint all the walls and all the cabinets and anything else that her brush, the doors, anything else her brush could touch. But the whole time she's painting, she's like, I feel awful. <laughs> so a few days after that, uh, you know, she'd been sick and painting and all that. And then COVID, like it was my turn. COVID hit me. And you guys, I was about as sick as I can ever remember. Um, I, like the sweats and the chills and the body aches and the pounding, raging headache and just the nausea, the dizziness. Like when I would sit up or get up or whatever. I just, here, here's the thing. I felt horrible. And um, I had one especially rough day. And, you know, with this being COVID and like our whole world being shut down because this is like a really big dig, big deal, I was like, man, I don't ever remember feeling this sick. Like, if this gets any worse, I, I might need to go to a hospital. And so here's what I was not doing. I was not painting the house. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't doing laundry. I wasn't doing dishes. I wasn't cleaning. I wasn't doing anything. I was sprawled out on the couch watching college basketball <laughs> because, I, you know, I didn't want to think too much about my sickness. Uh, so that's how I distracted myself. We're, you, we're different. So pretty soon, though, on that day, I'm just laying on the couch. I'm just like, oh. Every once in a while, one of the girls would go through their room, and they'd look at me, and I'd just be like, oh. <laughs> and pretty soon, you guys, here's what, here's what happened. All the girls in my house started mocking me. <laughs> like, we all had COVID, okay? And they were moving around, and they were doing stuff, and Jen's painting our house and doing major home renovations. <laughs> And I'm just laying down, acting like a baby, like I'm going to die. Yes. yes. So I was sick, and I was feeling teased. And you guys are not going to believe this, because I'm such a mature Christ follower. But I started to get a little bit grumpy. And so thankfully, the next day, I like started to feel a little bit better. So started to move around the house more and more. And, and I walked past the living room where all the girls were hanging out. And Jen said something like, oh, hi, sweetie. It looks like you're feeling better. Oh, good. You've turned the corner. Yay. <laughs> now, she was probably like innocently trying to relate to me and connect. But here's what I heard. <laughs> Finally, you can stop being such a baby, such a drama queen. See, you're fine. You're going to be fine. Maybe you can finally do something productive around here instead of just lying around sniveling. So I got even grumpier. And I said, you know, you know, I don't know that you just like turn the corner with COVID like you do with other stuff. Like, like I've been hearing from people and some people, they feel better for a day or two and then, and then they, like, they get even sicker. And then I finished off my outburst by saying, you know, it's not all up and to the right. And then I walked out. Okay, so, so thankfully I, I had turned the corner. And so the previous day was the worst of it. And I just progressively felt better, and I lived. Um, but earlier this summer, okay, earlier this summer, this is Christmas time. Earlier this summer, I found something out. I found out that for months and months after that, whenever I wasn't in the room, the girls would look at each other and say, it's not all up and to the right. <laughs> and then they would giggle, and they would laugh at me and mock me. For months, you guys, for months and months, my girls have been secretly mocking me. And then I come in the room, they're like, hi. <laughs> so now this is like the family joke, right? It's just like, it's not all up and to the right. So if you're wondering like, what does that even mean? Uh, let, me, let me show you on a graph. Here's, here's what it looks like, okay? This, this is a, a, a graph of constant growth or constant improvement. So on the bottom line, you would have time, right? And then on the left, you have your measurement, whatever your measurement is. And in, in, in the COVID case, it's how much better is dad feeling, 
Okay, and as time goes on, it just gets better up and to the right. It could be how much, how much money like our company makes or the size of our organization or whatever, okay? So up and to the right signifies constant growth and improvement. Things just getting better and better and better. But a lot of things, here's the thing, a lot of things that do grow over time or improve over time, they just don't follow this growth chart exactly. Right, with many things, it's like two steps forward, one back, and four steps forward, three back, right? And then five forward or whatever. It's, it's not everything is up and to the right. And so here's, here's where I'm going today. What I wanna talk about today is our walk with Jesus. Because a lot of us think that when we start walking with Jesus, it's supposed to all go up and to the right. We decide to follow Jesus, and then we just grow consistently, right? Our passion grows, our, our knowledge grows, our maturity grows, our character grows, our devotion to Jesus grows, our ability to read scripture and pray and our, our commitment to it, it just grows and it's just all up and to the right. But if this is what you expect, what happens then when you take a step back? Like what happens, right, when you go through a, a tough season, when you, when you fail? Well, if you think that it's supposed to all be up and to the right, then you start to go, well, what's, what's wrong with me? Like, I, maybe I'm just not cut out for this. Maybe this was never real. Maybe I've just sort of been fooling myself or pretending this whole time. So today, I want to look at one of the most famous followers of Jesus in history. And what I want us to see is that his walk with Jesus was far from up and to the right. Um, today, we're going to look at the journey of, of Peter, and I think for many of you, you're going to go, I did not know this about Peter. Um, this is, this is going to be, you guys, this is going to be good. Okay. Um, a lot of us, we, we kind of think of Peter as, as a guy who was invited by Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, and then he, he, he was like, and, and you're like, I don't know why, but Jesus just walked by and Peter was in his boat and he said, hey, follow me. And Peter was like, dropped his nets and just followed Jesus. He'd never met him or anything. And he just followed him. And, and then from there, they did all this ministry happened. And there's the moment where he denied Jesus. But really, I mean, just it, from there, he just, he was a follower of Jesus. You guys, that, that is not how it went. So let's work our way through Peter's journey with Jesus. It begins in John. Okay, it says, the next day, John, as in John the Baptist, was there again with, his, with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, okay, so just get this in your mind. These two guys were disciples of John the Baptist. When, when, the, when, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Okay, so here's... Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he's been listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. He's a disciple of John the Baptist. And John gave a ringing endorsement of Jesus. And so Andrew then kind of drifts and he goes and he spends time with Rabbi Jesus. So he eventually, he's so impressed, he eventually tracks down his brother Simon and he's like, bruh, we have found the Messiah. And it says, verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, in ancient Hebrew culture, a name carried huge significance. Like a name was a reflection of your identity, your calling, your personhood. So much was tied up in a name. And that's why the Old Testament tells us to worship the name of the Lord or not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Or in the New Testament, we're told to pray in Jesus' name. So, so Jesus renamed Simon, names him Petros in Greek, or Peter, meaning what? What does that mean? The rock. So Jesus, in his first encounter with Peter, he speaks a new identity over him. 
He gives Peter a, a new identity and a new calling, and he lays out that Peter has this role to play in the kingdom of God. But notice, he does not invite Peter to follow him here. This is not the moment. He does not ask Peter to leave everything behind and start like journeying with him everywhere. Not yet. So Peter returns to his life of fishing, having had this really like majestic, mythical encounter with this rabbi, Jesus. The next time Peter shows up is, is Matthew chapter 4. So here we go. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Now, you can sort of uh, read this and assume that this is like their first interaction with Jesus. It wasn't. Um, they had already spent time with Jesus, and they were captivated by Jesus. And now comes his invitation to actually be disciples and follow, and so they respond immediately. So this is the day that Peter drops his nets, and he gives up fishing. This is the day that Peter becomes like a full-time disciple of Jesus. And then for the rest of his life, Peter follows Jesus, right? I mean, from here, it's all up and to the right, right? Right? He just keeps learning and growing and maturing from here. And he becomes the de facto leader of the whole movement when Jesus is gone. And he preaches the first sermon at Pentecost. And the church is born. And then in really bad theological pictures of heaven, Peter is standing outside the gates determining who gets into heaven, right? <laughs> like from, from this moment, we just can sort of assume, well, it's, it's all up and to the right. That's what a lot of people assume. It's not the story. Okay, let's jump to Luke chapter 5 says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. What are the fishermen doing? They're washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, where is Peter... When Jesus is teaching from the boat, what is Peter doing? Is he right at the water's edge, just taking it all in, just hanging on every word, maybe scribbling notes? Is he central to the ministry of Jesus? No, Peter is a distance, quite a distance away washing his nets on the beach. Why? Because he spent the night fishing without Jesus. And we're like, wait, didn't, didn't Peter leave fishing to follow Jesus full-time? He did. But here he is, back again, fishing. He's gone back to fishing. So Peter's washing his nets on the shore, and Jesus is preaching. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, you could, in reading this, think, well, this is just Luke's version of the same story from Matthew. But, like, this is just the backstory to what happened before Jesus called them. And that's why it makes sense that they just, you know, left their net. No. The truth is, this is a different story. By, by Luke chapter 5, Jesus and Peter have already done ministry together. How do we know that? Well, we know that because in Luke chapter 4, one chapter earlier, Jesus and Peter are in a different scene and they're doing ministry. So check this out. Verse 38, chapter 4. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over over her and rebuked the fever. I wish someone would have, when I had COVID, <laughs> rebuked the fever. Kate, where were you? So he, he bent over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once. I guess you had your own fever. Maybe I should have rebuked your fever. I, okay. He got, so she got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. This is the ministry of healing. These are the crowds. Peter's there. This is his, his house. This is his mother-in-law that was healed. 
They had been to the synagogue that day, and then they went to Peter's house, and then Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then crowds of sick people. But by chapter five, Peter is fishing again without Jesus. Why? Well, we aren't told, but instead of traveling around with Jesus, he has gone back to his previous life and his previous identity, fishing. And scholars estimate that there have been about four months from the, the day Peter first dropped his nets in Matthew to this scene where Jesus comes and finds him fishing in Luke. So you guys, don't miss this. Somewhere in those four months, Peter left behind the adventure of following Jesus and drifted back to his old life of fishing. But Jesus comes to him again. Okay, back to the scene in Luke 5. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me. I am a sinful man. Why would he say that? Well, is he feeling guilty about having walked away from following Jesus in the invitation? And this is the scene where, where Peter then leaves his nets behind for good. And it's interesting that in the encounter, Jesus doesn't even invite Peter to follow. Jesus just speaks Peter's identity and his call over him one more time. It says, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Now hang on to that. Peter is afraid. He's afraid of something. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So thus far, Peter has had kind of this back and forth journey with Jesus. First, he has this mystical encounter with a rabbi who changed his name, and then he's invited to become a disciple, who, who, and he leaves his nets, and he does ministry with Jesus, and he sees healings, and he sees crazy stuff, but for some reason, he goes back to fishing. Why? Well, because fishing is his sense of identity and security. Like, fishing is... This is what I know. Fishing is, this is what I can control. Fishing is, this is where I feel comfortable and secure and like I'm enough apart from God. This, this is where I can be in charge of what happens to me instead of walking into the unknown and hoping that somehow Jesus really knows what he's doing. Fishing is Peter's identity before the call of Jesus on his life. And if he struggles, it's what he runs back to. It's where he goes when things get hard. But Jesus comes seeking him and says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. What's going on? It's Jesus speaking Peter's language to say, you can trust me. I will provide everything you need. Peter, trust me. I can fill your nets to overflowing any second I want. So stop clinging to what you can control and trust me. And I, I find this, this up and down journey of Peter to be just like super uh, comforting. It makes me feel so much better about myself. And it gives us a realistic picture of how faith and commitment is often born. Like it often comes through, through stalls and starts and stalls and starts and then restarts and then a moment of breakthrough and then a retreat in fear. And a Savior who just keeps coming after us. Uh, we talked last week about the way that Jesus just relentlessly seeks us, that he is in love with us. He doesn't just love us, but, but he is in love with us. And it's Jesus who pursues us, not the other way around. And this is huge, because if Jesus is the one who seeks, then it's not all on you and me to get everything just right. That means that when we fail and we struggle, he keeps seeking us. Um, and if you weren't here last week, uh, I would invite you to go back and catch that message because it is pretty foundational to everything that we're going to do for the rest of the summer. You can use U YouTube or Spotify or iTunes or I don't know what else we've got. Are we on anything else that's cool that I don't know about? <laughs> Stitcher? I don't know, whatever that is. Okay. So Peter <laughs> leaves his nets behind this time. 
And he experiences all this crazy stuff. And now he transitions from being a, an observer to being a participant. And he's doing all of the stuff of Jesus along with Jesus. I mean, it's awesome. He's, he's like overseeing the prayer ministry at the close of Jesus' sermons. And he's explaining what's going on to a mother while Jesus is healing her son. And he's collecting the leftovers after Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he's stepping on the, out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus. He's sent out by Jesus. And he himself casts out demons. I mean, Peter can just feel God moving all around him and he can feel God moving in him. And there's all this momentum. And so he's all jacked up and he's like, all right, what's the next mountain to climb? Let's go. What's, what's the next hurdle to jump over? What, what is the next project to tackle? What's the next thing God's calling me to do? Because I can't wait. Whatever it is, I am totally in. I am so in. You ever felt that way? Like you ever had a season like that? A moment like that? He goes through a, a season where it literally is up and to the right. Everything's up and to the right. And this goes on, you guys, how long does it last? It goes on for a couple of years. Now, some of you have participated in something like that. Like you got involved in something and, and God moved and it was beautiful. And, and so some of you have been there. Some of you are, are in a season like that right now. But even in these seasons, even these seasons are just that. They're seasons. It's, it's not going to just keep going up and to the right forever. So in the middle of all the miracles and the growing crowds and the popularity, Jesus starts talking constantly about his impending death. And it makes no sense to his disciples. They, they can't understand. Uh, Matthew 16 says this, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now, Jesus is explaining to them the bigger picture. That his sacrifice and the way to the, the kingdom will come to earth is going to be through his death, through his sacrifice. But Peter does not like this plan at all. This is not up and to the right. So Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then it all reaches a boiling point, a tipping point on the final night of, of Jesus's life. Jesus is, is again explaining his coming arrest and execution and he's telling the disciples that this is going to be utterly overwhelming for them, that their faith will be shaken, that they will all fall away for a time. This is Matthew 26 now. It says, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Truly, I tell you, uh, Peter replied, uh, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, most of you, almost all of you know where the story goes from here. Jesus is arrested, all heck breaks loose, the disciples scatter, and, and Peter and, and John follow at a distance to, to, to see what's going on. So they get to the, the, the trial, and John sneaks closer so he can kind of hear what's happening, but Peter stays off in the distance, in the courtyard, next to a charcoal fire, and three times, Peter is accused by different people in the courtyard of being a disciple of Jesus, and all three times, he insists he doesn't even know Jesus. As the third denial is leaving Peter's lips, Jesus is escorted into the courtyard, and it says, verse 60, just as he was speaking, Peter, uh, Peter, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. So one glance, one moment of eye contact with Jesus across a courtyard and Peter realizes he has betrayed the one that earlier that night he said he would die for. 
This, this life of ministry suddenly comes imploding and just folding in on itself. And, and this identity that he'd begun to live into, Peter the rock, it unravels as he locks eyes with Jesus in the courtyard. And Peter just comes unhinged. Luke says he went outside and wept bitterly. And we know what this feels like. I mean, every one of us knows what the, we've all had a devastating moment or a season of failure, failure to live up to who we thought we were, failure to live by our own convictions, right? A moment or a season where we come face to face with the reality of ourselves, and it's like, I'm not who I want to be, I, 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 who, I, who I meant to be, who I, who I really intended to be, who I promised him or her or myself that I actually would be from here on. I'm still not that person. See, we all live with a gap between what we say we believe and the, the belief that we live through the ups and downs of life. We've, we've all believed something so deeply that we felt, at, at least at one moment or season, 100% committed to it. For those of us that have followed Jesus for a long time, it, it can feel like I would give my life for Jesus in the kingdom. I, I really would. I, I would give my life to ministry, to serving. I'd give my life to bringing other people to Jesus. I would give my life to serve the least of these wherever God would send me to do it in whatever context that looks. I would give everything for Jesus. But here's what inevitably happens. Your circumstances change. Whatever the moment or season it is, it, it comes and it goes, and suddenly you're living a whole new reality. The week of camp, it ends, right? It ends and you go home to your old friends and to your family and your, your old life. You go home to the dysfunctions of life with your very imperfect family or the pressures that come from all of your friends who don't share your same views and didn't have your same experience. Or the season of incredible ministry just comes to a close for some reason. Like your team that you were working with disbands or, or you get a new job and you have to move and, and you, you look and you look and you look, but you just can't seem to find a church that feels right. It's like, oh, there's tons of churches, but, but there's just nothing like the one that you had. And suddenly you don't have the community that you once had and, and, and you're without the people that were with you in this thing. And, you, and so you just feel lost and you kind of drift. Or the church where you're thriving, it goes through some sort of crisis or radical change or the pastor leaves or, or the leadership decides to take the thing in a, in a new direction. Or you have a, a group at the church that has just been water for your thirsty soul and for some reason that group decides to stop meeting. There's no community, there's no accountability and your foundation starts to crumble away. Or your health fails or you lose your job or your spouse approaches you one day and says, you know what, I don't love you anymore. In fact, I'm not sure that I ever did. I'm out. Or death comes to somebody that you love deeply and have relied on, and suddenly life feels disoriented and you feel lost. This is the reality of actual life. Circumstances change, they just do. And when they do, what we often discover is that our convictions are not as deeply ingrained in us as we thought they were. When circumstances change, the gap between our stated convictions and the beliefs that are actually guiding our life, they get exposed. And suddenly we can realize, you know what, I'm having a hard time transferring what I believe in my head down into my heart. Like what I speak with my mouth and, and what lives deep down within my bones are, are actually not always one and the same. And if you're somebody who's, who's kind of in that place right now or, or you find yourself there someday soon because circumstances change, here's what you need to know. There comes a time for followers of Jesus where the most urgent need of your life is not another spiritual insight. It's to simply trust what you already believe. Well, why is it that no matter how many times I sing, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, 
I still feel like God is disappointed or angry or rolling his eyes at me when I, when I begin to fall back into my old pattern. Why is it that I can say, God, God showers me with endless grace and I can mean it, and yet when I, when I fall short again, I, I feel like somehow I've got to earn my way back to him. I've got to clean myself up so that I can come back into his presence. Why is it that I can sit in this room and feel like God adores me, but then the moment I get out of this room, I obsess over my calorie count? Or I become consumed with my body image? Why can I be moved and inspired by a God who gives me a new name, a God who calls me his child and adopts me into a new identity, but then actually live as though my boyfriend or my boss or my coach or my mom or my spouse determines my ultimate worth? There comes a time in our walk with Jesus where our most urgent need is not another spiritual insight. It's just to begin trusting what we already believe. But how? I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? How? How do you do that? How does that happen? How does belief make its way from my head into my heart and out into my life? How does this go from concept to how I really live? Well, in English, we tend to think about knowing something as a cognitive experience, right? But in the language, in the Hebrew language, which is what much of the Bible is written in, knowledge is the word in Hebrew, yada. And it is relational and experiential knowing. In Hebrew thinking, true knowing can't remain in the head. True knowing must travel from the head to the heart. In fact, until you have relational and experiential evidence, really all you have is theory. In Hebrew, knowing involves the intellect, but it requires experience. And this is why in the Old Testament, to know, okay, the, the word to know was a euphemism for sex. Then Adam knew Eve. That's not talking about him learning her favorite color. Yes? He's not reading a pamphlet about Eve. In Hebrew, yada, to know, it, it is experiential and it's relational. And I think this is what we want. We want to know God's love. We want to know God's mercy. We want to know God's grace. We want to know God's provision. We want to, to know what it is to be secure in Christ. We want that knowledge to go from our head to our heart. But, but how does that happen? Well, let me, let me explain. Let me give a shot at explaining it this way. Um, if you were to say... Jason, how do you know that Jen loves you? Here's what I wouldn't do. I would not recite to you our wedding vows. Uh, what I would do is I'd start telling you about all, our, all the ways our relationship works. I'd start telling you about all the times that she's chosen my company over something else. I tell you about all the times that I've hurt her and she's forgiven me. I, I tell you about the hundreds and hundreds of hours and miles that we've walked together, sometimes just being outside together, kind of in the quiet, sometimes laughing, sometimes dealing with challenges we're facing, sometimes listening to podcasts together, sometimes talking about our kids or our friends. I would tell you about a bunch of the trips that we've taken together around the world. I, I would tell you about the time that Jen almost drowned in Mexico. I'd tell you about the hundreds of meals that we've shared. I'd tell you of the countless times that she has encouraged me, times when I was angry or depressed or felt weak. I would tell you about the time that she loved me even though I had COVID and was a grumpy drama queen. <laughs> How do I know Jen loves me? I would tell you about all the, the Mondays where we've just spent the day together doing nothing. I'd tell you about the, the movies and the shows that we've watched over the years. I might tell you of the occasional evening of biblical knowing. <laughs> Don't want to think about that too much. But this is how I know Jen loves me. Um, how do I know? Because there is relational and experiential knowledge. Okay, so back to Peter. Peter is on a journey where his knowledge of Jesus is traveling more and more. It's traveling from his head to his heart. 
Like uh, three days after the denial, his, his circumstances changed yet again. Jesus is raised from the dead. And yet Peter is still broken and he is still ashamed. So let's jump ahead to one more scene. Jesus is pursuing Peter yet again because Peter has gone back to what, guess what? Fishing. So this is John chapter 21. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is the same sea where Jesus called Peter the first time. This is the same place where Peter initially dropped his nets for good and spent the next two and a half years. And, 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 and so it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Dynamis, that might be why he went by Thomas, um, <laughs> Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Does that sound familiar? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and this is the same shore where Jesus had taught from Peter's boat. This is the place where he had told him to go out into the deep waters and drop his nets one more time. This is the place where Peter said yes to Jesus kind of in that once and for all moment. But the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. That is the same miracle on the same sea from the same shore. This is a recreation of the moment that Peter first became a disciple. Verse 7, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, and that's John writing the Gospel of John, referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's got a lot of humility. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, a charcoal fire is one of the most distinct smells on the planet, isn't it? And psychologically, smell is... Is, is a sense deeply connected to our memory. And this is why certain smells, like the scent of your grandma's house, can transport you to a moment in your childhood, or you can have a em- very emotional response to the scent of like your late mother's perfume. Smell psychologically has a way to, to pull you into your memory. And charcoal is a distinct smell. And the last time that Peter smelled it, what was he doing? He was warm in his hands over a charcoal fire, denying Jesus. Jesus has set a scene to transport Peter back, to take him back to that night of failure. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. That's pretty specific. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. And that's what he did when he fed the 5,000. It was another miracle of provision. And he seems to just be reminding them again and again, follow me, trust me, I will provide for you. And he's using all of the different senses to get them to understand. I mean, what a teacher he was. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Quick question. What are are these? What, What is the other love he's measuring Peter's love for him against? These could be like these other disciples. Like, do you really love me more than James and John and Thomas loved me. But these could be something else entirely. It could be the fish. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, the fish? Do, do you love me more than the identity you keep retreating back to? Do you love me more than the self that you've constructed on your own? Do you love me more than you love fishing and you love your old life? 
And Peter keeps retreating to fishing, like that's the pattern. And so my question is, like, what do you retreat to outside of Jesus? Like, if you, if you take your gaze off of Jesus, where do you go? Where do you get your sense of identity? Who is the person you tend to become apart from Jesus? Like, if you stop seeking and walking with and trusting Jesus for a moment, then what is it that gives you your identity? What do you, cons- what do, like, what do you consistently run to? Because we, we all have something. We all do. And Jesus had always known that Peter was not fully 100% devoted. Jesus had always known that, that Peter had more maturing to do. I mean, the only person surprised in the courtyard that morning was Peter. Jesus knew it was coming, and he loved Peter anyway. So on the night of the betrayal, when Jesus predicted it, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's interesting, isn't it, that he didn't pray for Peter not to fail. He prayed for him to not give up on his calling once he had failed. When you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Okay, back to the beach and the fish. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Now notice what Jesus is calling him. What name is he using? Simon, his identity before Jesus. His identity he keeps running back to again and again. But here, Jesus is calling him back to being Peter. Feed my lambs. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three denials around a charcoal fire. Three questions around a charcoal fire. Jesus recreates both Peter's most devoted moment and his most shameful moment right there on the beach. Three questions followed by three statements of Jesus recommissioning Peter, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, you, you failed, but I am far from finished with you. You can still do everything that I've dreamed for you. And in this moment, Peter's knowledge is, is beginning to move, see, from his head to his heart, from an idea to experience and relationship. See, Peter has always believed in a God of mercy. He's a Jew. He believes in a God of mercy. But in this moment, it's actually becoming real life for him. Frederick uh, Buechner writes, for what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars, there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-to-day lives who may not be writing messages about himself in the stars, but in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around down here, knee-deep in, in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of the world. It is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we are really after, and that is also, I think, the miracle we really get. It's it's not enough to have a head belief of the accepting love of God. We have to let our hearts receive God's love right where we are. And Peter had some highlights, right? I mean, Peter, you look at this, he had some highlights. He turned out to be a great preacher and a dynamic leader. But when you think about it, Peter's lasting legacy is God's grace, not his own competence. His legacy is grace. The most commonly known story of the life of Peter is his denial of Jesus in the courtyard that night. In light of all the amazing things that Peter did with and for Jesus, it is his failures, not his successes, that enable us to most see the love of Jesus in his story. And what Peter discovered most profoundly about Jesus came not from his successes. They came from his failures. And many decades later, 
Peter wrote a letter to the new churches and these new communities of Christians that were popping up. And in that letter, he wrote a sentence born out of his own experience. He said, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. That knowledge wasn't just head knowledge. He knew it in his heart. Why? Because his walk with Jesus was far from up and to the right. He had many raging successes, but he also had devastating failures. Two steps forward, three steps back, five forward, two back, but he just kept walking with Jesus. How do you let the grace of God move to your heart? You keep walking with Jesus day after day, season after season, and just watch what becomes real to you over time. And so um, this morning, I want to invite the, the musicians worship team to make their way back up. This morning, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. And... Um, the way that this works is we have these spaces, the bread and the juice is up front. We have these spaces where you can come and kneel if you want, spend some time in prayer, um, or you can just drink it and eat it right here, or you could take it back to your chair, whatever you want to do. We also have some in the back, and I believe we even have a gluten-free option in the back. Um, so uh, anyway, the worship team is going to play, and we're going to go through, I think, four songs but at any point that you feel ready, I just invite you to come and take communion. And this is just a time to like use our senses to remember, oh yeah, this is who God is. Oh yeah, this is what Jesus has done for me. He has laid his life down for me. But then he was raised from, from the dead and he comes to us and says, I'm speaking an identity over you. And I'm inviting you into that identity again and again and again. And yes, you're going to fail. And yes, you're going to stumble. And yes, it's going to be a struggle. But I'm coming after you again and again because I know who you can be. And I will not stop until everything has been done for you to step into the life that I'm calling you to. It's beautiful. It's beautiful.